Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Crypto Daily Briefing. Here's why you should watch today's show. One of the world's biggest broker-dealers is reportedly looking into offering Bitcoin trading. We'll explain why Fidelity Investments move would be a big deal. Plus, we'll do a deep dive into Web3 and all the innovation and disruption it can bring with it. We'll break down our conversation with Steve Goulden from Cumberland DRW. And stay tuned for the latest from the SALT Conference. I'm Ash Bennington. I've got Moritz Siebert with me. Moritz, how are you doing? Hey, Ash. I'm doing really fine. Just got back from vacation. Batteries recharged. It's a lovely fall day, late summer day here in, in Munich. And it's great to be back uh, on the show with you again. Perfect. It's great to have you back with us. Uh, we should also add, viewers, please don't forget to click the subscribe button and hit the like button if you're on YouTube. Now, right into the latest price action. We got U.S. inflation data out today. The consumer price index is still hot. Year-on-year, year, CPI came in at 8.3%. That's higher than analysts expected. Of course, we're leading the daily briefing with macro data because of the sensitivity that crypto prices have shown recently to inflation data. On a month-over-month -month basis, CPI came in at 0.1% in August and 0.6% if you exclude food and energy. That's on a month-on-month -month basis. This is overshadowing that we are, in fact, in the week of the merge, which is scheduled for Wednesday night or Thursday morning U.S. time based on the merge countdown clocks. Last week's star performer wasn't Ethereum, though. It was Bitcoin. It posted a double-digit gain for the trailing seven days. But some of that is now evaporating after the CPI data release. Moritz, speaking of the merge and Ethereum, what are your expectations for it? Excited like a kid in the candy store, Ash. It's kind of like you're waiting for Christmas Eve. It's only like a day and 13 hours or 14 hours or something like that away from us. But, you know, I'm also a little bit puzzled by the price action because people were so bullish on the event. And, you know, I've repeatedly heard that Ethereum really has to go to like 2000 and 3000 and 4000. And I don't know where these price levels come from. You know, we're trading at 1600, I think, as we speak. And but, you know, what I did hear from and like maybe a convincing argument is that a lot of people, um, you know, still stay on the sidelines because, you know, we're always stealing in probabilities and never uncertainties. And there is a non-zero probability that there could be a technical glitch with the merge, right. or, you know, the fork play out in a different way, whatever. And therefore, some investors just fear the risk or they have a career risk and they're not investing now, but they have tri powder for say in 48 hours from now, and then they would invest. And maybe that, you know, takes the price higher. Very clearly the trade, the merge trade is a consensus trade. Um, in my experience, these trades can be going uh, awry. Um, but, you know, everybody that I essentially speak to, they're all along Ethereum and some, some of them are, 
heavily long Ethereum. So the question is, if everybody is already long, who is the marginal buyer that could buy from them when they sell? Let's see. The next 48 hours will be super interesting. Uh, it'll pan out one way or the other. Personally, I am long Ethereum. I hope it'll go higher. That's why I'm excited like Kid in the Candy Store. Morch, excellent points as always. You and I were geeking out a little bit about this uh, off camera, this idea that you have this potential uh, for a low probability, though potentially high impact event in the event that something goes wrong during the merge. Now, I know it's been tested extensively, but we've talked about this before here on this show. Uh, it's one thing to test on test nets with relatively small value uh, relative to this $200 billion total outstanding capitalization or network value of the Ethereum network. That, that's exactly right. I mean, it's, you know, one way to do all these try, try runs and they've done quite a few and and they all, you know, worked um, successfully and flawlessly, I think, um, to the extent that's that's possible to say. But the big thing is happening in 36 hours or when, whenever the difficulty is reached. And look, I'll be uh, I'll be watching it. It's going to be, I think, in my early morning. Um, so at a convenient time, I'm not sure if it's such a convenient time for you in the East Coast to observe this, but I'll definitely be around. I'm not sure if I'll be trading around it. Probably not. I mean, that's just, you know, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't know what to do, but just, you know, observing the price action is, is something I'm looking forward to. Yeah. And of course, we'll be covering it here on Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Uh, moving on a bit here, yesterday at the SALT conference in New York City, the message from a crypto heavyweight was, it's not a crypto-specific downturn, it's an everything downturn. This from the CEO of FTX, Sam Bankman-Fried, uh, who argued that this is due to Fed action and that it doesn't negate the underlying fundamentals of crypto, such as the huge potential of blockchains. That's just one of the interesting thoughts we heard. It's all, which brings us to our top story. The Wall Street Journal is reporting Fidelity Investments is considering offering Bitcoin trading to its retail customers. Fidelity is one of the world's largest broker dealers with some 34 million customers. It's been one of the most crypto friendly financial institutions. In 2008, it launched a Bitcoin trading business for hedge funds and other institutional investors. So obviously, they've been in this game for some time now. At the SALT conference, Mike Novogratz, CEO of, C of Galaxy Digital, said, quote, a bird told me Fidelity is going to shift their retail customers into crypto soon enough. Moritz, this is a big deal if confirmed. What are your thoughts? It is a big deal, Ash. Um, you know, and this is positive for the overall space. Fidelity has always been one of the crypto friendliest institutions, and they've been early. So them moving their offering, which already exists in the institutional space, over into the retail space it's just going to be, it has to be a big positive impulse for the overall space. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, you know, Moritz, I was at SALT uh, most of the day yesterday. I'm headed back later this afternoon. It's really interesting. Obviously, we're in a crypto winter now. Bitcoin is, you know, minus almost 70% uh, from a high of about uh, 68,000, uh, almost 69,000, I should say, in November of 2021. Uh, it's less euphoric this year. But, you know, what's interesting to me is that the people are still there. I'm talking about hedge fund managers, big banks, big accounting firms, big consulting firms. It reminds me a little bit of the post.com meltdown, the so-called dot-bomb meltdown in early 2000. The technology continued to march forward. There are still these great conversations going on. There are still people who are long-term bullish. And I think most important of all, as during the dot-com uh, 
post.com phase, the development, the underlying development, the creation of code bases, the creation of infrastructure continues to march forward. We were just talking about this, for example, with the merge. To me, that's telling. I'm curious, Moritz, what are your thoughts on this? I agree with all of that, Ash. I think people are coming from all directions. I mean, this is hedge funds. We now have more than 2,000 digital asset investment firms in the world, 2,000, right? There's, it's very lopsided, obviously, in the distribution. There's many, many tiny ones, and then there's you know, a few ones that are large. But you know, the structure of products business is developing. Volatility curves are developing. Repo curves are developing. There's still a ton of venture business being done in this space. Um, just two hours ago, I was giving, I gave a presentation to a large pension fund, you know, that is looking into the crypto space and they want to get an exposure. So the questions are, how do we do this? You know, what are the alternatives next to venture capital? How can we access the space and generate some alpha, you know, not only track Bitcoin and Ethereum. So I think, like you say, the, you know, it's not as euphoric as it used to be. Maybe that is a healing process that is actually quite valuable for the overall space too. kind of get it down to earth, but definitely the interest is high. This isn't stopping. That space is moving forward. And it's a real diverse group of people that are looking at this. Yeah, uh, very well said. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com/wonder. More. It's the other thing I wanted to touch on from Salt was Rao's conversation with Dan Moorhead, of course, of Pantera Capital. They talked about the macro case for digital assets. This is the case about the rising levels of debt, about inflation, about central banks that have essentially painted themselves into a corner. Those are the highlights from the conversation with Raul and Dan at Salt yesterday, but you don't need to hear it from me secondhand. Raul and Dan Moorhead just had a long-form conversation about this on Real Vision Crypto just last month. You can go and sign up for free at realvision.com forward slash crypto. Just type in your email address and you're good to go. Totally free from there. I know, Moritz, you had some thoughts about the conversation between Raul and Dan. I watched this conversation, Ash, and I really enjoyed it. But to be quite honest, I didn't watch it for the digital asset content, which was excellent too. But, you know, I already knew that Raul and Dan, they're essentially on the same page. Both love digital assets. Both think that space is going to move way, way higher compared to where it is today. But what I also knew is that they had opposing views on yields and inflation. And I always enjoy conversations where, you know, they both have their arguments both well presented they both can make their points but only one of them can be right and mm-hmm. the markets will show who's right but dan moorhead is expecting way higher yields you know he's expecting the fed to continue with the hiking process because he sees the inflation up here and it's just like look the fed has to close that gap no matter what and raul has made the point that well you know we're going into a big recession slash depression you know um and, and therefore, yields cannot rise anymore. If anything, they will need to drop. So there you have it. Two opposing views, both well presented. Pick your pick your poison. 
Yeah, pick your poison. Well said, because as you say, only one can be right. But also important to point out, I don't think either of them are an especially rosy scenario for the U.S. economy. That is true. I mean, it's look, we're living through very difficult times. This is true for essentially any country, any developed country on planet Earth. I mean, debt levels are super high. Inflation is rampant. Essentially everywhere, energy prices where I live are yeah. through the roof. Um, look, I sometimes when you get up in the morning, you feel like, where are the good news? I mean, every right. day is kind of like one headline chases the next with something breaking, some war, some crisis, a geopolitical event, you know, inflation higher than expected, yada, yada, yada. I kind of like I become deaf to that. <laughs> you just want it to stop. Um, but this is the period we're living through now. Right. As we know, these periods sooner or later will come to an end you know we you know just don't know yet when that end is going to be there but you know it's not going to be forever um but yeah we're living through interesting slash volatile and also difficult times moritz i sometimes wonder if it's like our fault folks who are about our age who grew up during this period of optimism between november of 1989 and september of 2001 maybe we just have a mistaken view about the world always becoming better and that this is the natural state of things <laughs> yeah, that might be right, but you can't blame us for our date of birth. But I, I agree with you. Look, I mean, there's people out there who have also never experienced anything but essentially central bank largesse. Like, you know, yes. if you started um, becoming interested in the markets after the global financial crisis, then essentially what you've learned, the trick that you've learned is, oh, whatever happens, we're going to kick the can down the road and there's going to be... Um, Right. Um, a, a decrease in the yields by the central banks and more liquidity and more credit to essentially bail everybody out. Now, this is going on since more than 10 years. And the question is, can it go on forever? I'd right. say no. So, but when does it stop exactly? That to figure out is, is a difficult thing to do. Um, yeah. So look, you know me, Ash, I, tend to fade the news. I obviously observe them and read them and I try to understand them. I'm very interested, but my guiding light are prices and price action and trends and momentum. And I don't think that anybody will really know anything in these complex worlds, like, you know, where prices are going to be a day from today or a week from today or a month from today is anybody's guess. So I'm using yeah. different techniques and frameworks in order to have a true north and a compass to guide me through that. And that's one of the reasons why we love having you on this show. You know, it's interesting, as you said, we've lived in this time period uh, where things were good uh, and prices went up. And when things were bad or really bad, prices went up because we saw central bank liquidity that's globally right. flooding the market. That's absolutely right. It's been always like that for the past 12 years. And, you know, we've gone through all these crises. I mean, you can't even enumerate them as like, you know, the government debt crisis in Europe, um, you know, Italy, the yield spreads. I mean, I'm just talking about Europe, the bank bail bail-ins in Cyprus, <laughs> the mortgage yeah. market in the United States, the pandemic, uh, oil going negative, all of these things. Um, it's just incredibly risky as well, I, I would say. Um, you know, the price moves that we're seeing in all sorts of markets, energy markets, of course, carbon markets, digital asset markets, equity markets, the oil market, which used to be and still is very financialized. But, you know, yeah. for the oil market to move five bucks in a day, it's kind of like, you know, that happened once or twice a year. 
it's not happening every day. So the markets have become way more volatile. Um, and I just want to, you know, iterate. I mean, you have to be careful with your position sizing and um, and size appropriately, and you know, don't risk it all. Well, amid all this uncertainty, the one thing I can say for certain is if there's a plague of locusts, we will cover it here on Real Vision Daily Briefing and Real Vision Crypto <laughs> Daily Briefing. Uh, getting exactly. back to the SALT conference here, uh, we should also point out that crypto services firm Abra made a big announcement at the conference. Full disclosure, Abra is an advertiser on Real Vision. Uh, but Abra says it is in the process of forming Abra Bank, a U.S. state-chartered institution for U.S. customers, and Abra International, a fully regulated digital asset business for customers outside the United States. Abra says it will be the first regulated bank in the United States, enabling people in the U.S. to deposit and bank with digital assets and to trade crypto for fiat and vice versa. Abra says the U.S. bank will launch later this year, while the international unit will launch uh, later I'm sorry, Abra says the U.S. bank will launch next year, correction, while the U.S., uh, in, where the international unit will launch next year. Moritz, what are your thoughts on this? What could it mean for crypto in the U.S.? Well, first off, I'm absolutely not surprised to see this happening. I, I think that in the future, the next 10 or 20 years, the biggest banks in the world will have a crypto business, or maybe they will be crypto native banks. We're already seeing this now. For instance, here in Europe, we have two banks in Switzerland regulated by the Swiss regulator Finma, they're called Signum and Seba. And really the only business they do is crypto service oriented businesses. So that's trading of cryptos, it's custody of digital assets, it's on ramping and off ramping into a regulated banking infrastructure, which for sure institutional clients will like, you know, they will like access points that conform with banking regulation. So they do all of this, what they don't do is credit cards and mortgages and you know uh, trading of stocks and ETFs. So I I think this is just going to go further and further and further. Uh, maybe you'll have the big existing banks you know build their crypto business and attach it to what they already have. I think that's going to happen, and you'll have you know these fintech oriented startups that become a crypto native bank. Yeah. So international uh, later this year from Abra U.S. Bank next year. Uh, by the way, Abra and Fidelity's moves that we've discussed today are just the latest examples of crypto appearing to become increasingly more mainstream. Still, it's early days for the space and many exciting opportunities are yet to fully materialize. A good example of this is Web3, a new decentralized iteration of the Internet uh, and a nascent technology whose possibilities were only beginning to understand. And that is what my conversation with Steve Goulden was all about. Steven is a senior crypto analyst at Cumberland, the crypto arm of trading firm DRW Holdings. I've asked him about the transition from Web 2 to Web 3 and what benefits it could bring. Let's take a look at that conversation now. Crypto in smart contract terms kind of has been around since about 20, 2015, since you know Ethereum, Ethereum began. You know, since then, obviously, a lot of the activity has been uh, has been trading, has been um, leverage, yield farming, etc. Um, so, pr primarily trading in DeFi, right? We think we are now kind of on the cusp of seeing real world activity, like actual, you know, much like the tech stocks that you know moving on chain. Um, and companies beginning to see and, and protocols beginning to see the benefit of that, right? So, 
thinking about you know why why it would make sense for a protocol to be on chain versus you know in the in the normal web two space. Um, firstly, web three web three protocols can be heavily automated and and low cost. That means you know they can operate with far fewer employees. A good example of this might be like Uniswap or, or SushiSwap. Uh, there's in, in, a, in a decentralized protocol, there's basically no middleman taking a large fee. You know, in some of the Web two cases, maybe twenty five, thirty percent or more. Um, in, in crypto, you know, usually at, at worst, it's it's perhaps two, three percent. Uh, the other big thing that we think is is super interesting is uh, you can use a token almost like non cash marketing spend, right? So a good example would be you know Uber, right? Uber is to all intents and purposes a decentralized business but it never had a token so it had to use cash as an incentive for drivers and for users um you know imagine that you had a a decentralized ride-sharing business but with that token and therefore the platform could bootstrap its growth and kind of build liquidity on that sort of cold start problem using the token up front right and obviously that means much lower barriers to entry for, for companies, and it clearly opens up a lot of innovation potential. The other thing I think that's really interesting is using a token um, uh, for the day-to-day -day business, right? So essentially as, as a kind of in-economy in currency, that token has value as a utility coin, not just as a kind of... Um, you know, as, 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 a, as a derivative of the profit that the, the, the protocol can make. So much like um, imagine that you had to pay for iPhones with Apple stock, right? Or the way people need dollars to buy barrels of oil. Dollars or, or, or in this sense, a Apple stock would have a value over and above their um, underlying real yield or profitability, right? So when you think of it like that, you could plausibly have um, very low margin platforms that in web two space web two sense or from a kind of equity analysis perspective might not make sense but because you have this huge underlying demand to buy the token to actually transact in the economy that creates a, a value over and above you know the 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 profitability so that kind of opens up um value accrual for potentially very very low margin platforms which then you know could be extremely disruptive Really interesting stuff here. Uh, first, we should probably talk a little bit about, about what DRW is. It's a very large so-called prop shop. These are proprietary trading shops. These are folks uh, who use very uh, intense technology uh, to look into uh, some of the aspects of trading that are perhaps not so visible to retail traders, things like HFT, uh, and then some of the analysis, of course, that they're doing in the digital asset space. So Moritz, what Steve is really talking about here is Web3. I think his Uber example is an incredibly interesting one, almost because it's like a, a thought experiment about how real world businesses could be built around Web3 architecture. What are your thoughts? You know, Ash, when I listened to something like this and I enjoyed it because it's fascinating but at the same time, I find it incredibly complex. It gets my head spinning because... Yeah. I tried to find orientation, like what does it actually mean? How could this work? How does this compare to what we currently have? And how would it be any better? So the Uber example, for instance, I think he was saying they needed to pay cash to the drivers in order to incentivize them to drive in the first place. It's like, yeah, that's true. So you get drivers because you pay them dollars. 
I'm not sure if they would have taken the steering wheel if you had given them the token, because maybe they would have disregarded the token as something. Well, what's that token? That token isn't worth much. Maybe you couldn't convert it into dollars. So you kind of like you take this long shot on the project working. So, you know, sometimes I have the feeling that these things are talked about in a very rosy way in a, in a way that oh if we only had the token then all of a sudden everything is going to resolve and everything is going to be beautiful that i think is probably not right but i i, I do see where you know using simple examples i can see where some of that what he's saying makes sense at least to me maybe to my simple mind but you know, the token, a token is a way to probably raise capital in a faster and more efficient way for small businesses. So think about if you had the idea of opening a coffee shop, you're certainly not the only person that owns a coffee shop. I mean, there's, you know, all sorts of coffee shops all around the block. But if you are a good barista and you have, let's say, a Twitter profile and people know you and, you know, you can say, look, I mean, come to my coffee shop. You can. I have a token. Um, when you drink 10 coffees, you get a token or, you know, please buy some tokens from me now because I'm not going to be IPOing my small coffee shop on NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange. So it's kind of like a way to raise capital and get businesses started. That's point one. And point two is a token. And that I understand in like an NFT type of way can be used in order to generate, create um, closeness between the business and the customers so it's like an air mile but a better type of an air mile a more inclusive and more usable air mile um you know you get rewards you're no longer the product you're a token owner and you kind of like you become a cheerleader for the underlying business um it essentially ties into the intangible and brand values of that business and makes that business more valuable you will get some of the rewards for that in return like a shareholder i can see this the legalities around that, I think, are going to be very, very interesting. Like, like right. I have my head spinning. Imagine an existing company such as Amazon issues a token. You know, Amazon has issued stock, right? So if you're a stockholder of Amazon, you own a part of the company. Um, you wouldn't be all too happy if all of a sudden there were a token and that token, which you don't own, you own the stock, and all of a sudden the token starts to reflect share like economics because it would be dilutive to you so um look the, the these things are fascinating i think it'll move in a hybrid fashion in that direction but there's so many things at least to me that are unclear that i still need to understand where i kind of like go like hey pace yourself you know this is everybody's talking fast everybody's talking oh let's do this token and this token and this component and this nft and web3 and it's like well um i'm overwhelmed yeah, more. It's so well said there. I think in the way that you frame this, I, I, it's fascinating to me because I see both sides of this argument. Uh, on the one hand, I really do think there's enormous potential uh, for Web three. I think this may be one of perhaps even the biggest application to come out of these decentralized currencies that we talk about every day at Real Vision Crypto. Uh, but to your point, 
I think for Uber is a, is a great example. I don't know about you, but most of my friends uh, who were driving Uber at night after doing a day job weren't doing it because they wanted to accumulate uh, some uh, theoretical position in a token. They were doing it because they needed a couple bucks. They needed cash. They needed to pay the rent. Uh, and even if they are fully liquid at the time that you do it, when you start driving uh, at the beginning of the week, you don't know where it's going to end up at the end of the week. These are market traded tokens. They reflect what we see elsewhere in the market. Uh, and what does that mean? It means that ultimately in US dollar or in euro, that you need to pay your rent and that you need to buy groceries for your family in, it may wind up being different uh, by the time the drive ends as then it, when it begins, if it was a long enough trip. That, that's exactly right. That's my point. So, you know, I think we can all frame this in this again in this rosy way where, you know, this is the way forward. I'm sure, again, you know, some of that is likely going to work, but not all of it. And, you know, to me, it seems sometimes that people put this out there as kind of like, all of this is going to change the world. And that I would bet against. That I think is very unlikely to be true. Yeah, so interesting and a lot of nuance there, I think. Uh, you mentioned uh, more, it's Web2. We should probably say the scale of Web2 was unprecedented. The biggest social network, Facebook, reached more than a billion users around the world. Uh, that begets this question, could Web3 reach a similar scale, perhaps in enough time, and how? Let's listen to Steve's thoughts on this point. Clearly, you can imagine a decentralized BNB. Uh, you can imagine, you know, a decentralized Tinder. Uh, obviously, it lends itself very, very well to what are essentially platform businesses, where you know you have two sides who basically just need a, a central platform to coordinate. And clearly, you can use the token to kind of bootstrap that early liquidity, right? Yeah, you know, other examples, and, and I'm borrowing this from um, a really, really good newsletter by um, a lady who goes by the name of Tasha Labs, um, writes really good stuff on Web3. Of course, as, she's example been on Real is, Vision is, before. Okay, yeah, I think her stuff's, I think her stuff's great. Um, highly recommend it. But one example, she wrote um, an article a few weeks ago about 35 Web3 use cases. And the first example was decentralized logistics. And it was as simple as allowing... Um, you know, logistics operators to store stuff in your backyard and getting paid in a token for doing so, right? Um, and maybe that token has a profit share, maybe it doesn't, but the be it the local the, the retailer or the uh the driver needs to go out onto an exchange and buy that token and that creates the underlying value for the token and return to you. So, and you could say, why not just use dollars? Well, again, you can use that token to to, to bootstrap and, and create create um, uh, to, to bootstrap as non cash marketing spend, right? And create that kind of liquidity. You know, these are just a few examples. You know, other examples might be, for example, uh, a a social media platform that allows people to tokenize their data and then sell that data on a kind of exchange, almost as an NFT, maybe, to uh, a marketing firm. And so, uh, yeah, I think we're really just scratching the surface. Clearly, it lends itself well to um, to platform businesses. Um, it doesn't lend itself, at least at this point, that well to you know companies that actually make physical widgets, right? Um, but you know, I think I think mm. there's there's clearly a big a big space to go for, and a lot of a lot of Web two businesses out there that could be could be disrupted. Sounds like what you're talking about here is nothing more or less significant than re-architecting the entire way the internet, in fact, e-commerce, finance takes place today. I mean, yeah, obviously that's pretty bold, right? But um, I, I think, you know, I think at its core, there's there's a big opportunity 
in decentralized businesses from you know from the from the the cost savings and the revenue opportunities that we've sort of touched on um but i think just in general kind of like lowering the barriers uh for for new businesses to 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 form and for for innovation to happen right um i think that's on the on the kind of like real activity front uh, and then you know coming back to the the point around utility coin valuation i think that certainly when you when when you approach looking at a tech stock from from the from as as, a, as an equity analyst you know you certainly don't think about any of these kind of aspects right you're very much focused on um on margins and earnings and whatnot right so the idea of having a kind of utility valuation baked into um the protocol which you know might even be worth more than the than the um the profitability aspect of it, you know, that's, I think, very revolutionary. And I think it's something that TradFi and equities just hasn't really begun to sort of consider yet. Now, obviously, it's extremely early days. We haven't really seen, um, I mean, perhaps you could say we've seen aspects of it in Ethereum and some of the other ones, but we haven't really seen much of it in, in Web3 protocols. So um, it's still <laughs> very much experimental. But, you know, if that, if that actually gains some steam, then clearly, uh, I think that's, that's quite revolutionary. So Moritz, Steve picks up on some of the same themes here, re-architecting the monetization model of the internet, things like a decentralized Tinder or a decentralized Airbnb. Uh, decentralized logistics is another example that he gives, although I don't know, I think there might be some issues with uh, chain of custody, spoilage and breakage if you're storing Amazon stuff in your backyard. Uh, again, Moritz, this is a really fascinating topic, obviously very early. What are your thoughts here? Yeah, my backyard isn't set up for storing anything, really. Um, I, I don't want it there. Look, I, I can get a bunch of these things. You know, what's very clear to me is it does make sense where you can cut out the middleman or like an right. embedded function that is a cost function. So where you can reduce costs, cut out the middleman, that makes a lot of sense to move that onto a protocol. An example is Uniswap, right? or any of the other decentralized protocols where market making takes place and you're essentially removing the market maker or the authorized participant and it's all just code based. Great, get this. I can understand streaming, you know, which could potentially be disruptive to Spotify or any of the other platforms where you have music streamed over the blockchain and if you listen to it, you have your wallet connected, could be a MetaMask, you're kind of like you're paying by the microsecond or you're paying by the second. If you don't listen to the full song, you're only paying for the amount of time proportionally that you've listened to the song. So I can understand the Brave browser if you know what that is. Um, some people, I think, you know, more and more people are using it. I have it installed on my computer. I should use it more. But, you know, for my time and my attention and my eyeballs, I'm essentially being rewarded in a Web3 type of spirit through the Brave token, which, you know, is worth something. Who knows what it's going to be worth in the future? But it feels like for the first time, I'm not the product where I'm just giving away my data for, right. well, not nothing for the convenience of a service, but if I give, if I watch an ad, then I get a financial reward for it. All of that's clear. Where it's not clear to me, and that's where I, maybe there's a little bit of a pushback, is these ideas of Airbnb and the other examples that he's mentioned, how that would really change. Like if you had an Airbnb token, if you say you stayed in an Airbnb, in an Airbnb vacation five times a year, you get that many tokens. If you have 10 tokens, you can get a discount. That to me still feels like an air mile type of concept. It's, it's essentially an air mile, which is a Web3 type of component 
in a tokenized form, um, maybe an NFT form. Um, but what I'm failing to understand at that point, maybe it'll get to me in, in the next couple of weeks or months is how that is really revolutionary. How, will, how, how would that move the needle and make the economics better, make the experience better, just you know, improve the business model substantially? That I don't see yet, but it might be me. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, I, I should also say that I, I really find Steve's analysis of this to be fascinating. I mean, look, it's really easy for us to put on our analyst hat and sit back in our desk chairs and, you know, try and uh, sort of nitpick and poke holes. Uh, but it is fascinating. And I think that this is, in my view, at least, uh, certainly going to become a more prominent uh, in the space of the way that we do commerce, of the way that we do finance, and especially the way that social networks work. Like for me, decentralized Tinder makes sense, right? If you're paying whatever it is, $9.99 a month or $14.99 a month, why wouldn't you want to get some of those uh, some of those tokens to participate in it and to potentially accrue some value while you're you know, doing your swiping. I mean, I think I get that. And I think it does make sense. And it is it is super easy for us to be like, well, you know, here are issues X, Y, and Z. But I, I do think that this is something that's coming. And it's, it's great to have someone like Steve on who spends all of his time thinking about or a good portion of his time thinking about exactly these issues. Uh, talking of which, this brings us to our next question, uh, which is how do you value these uh, tokens? How do you value the upcoming Web3 ecosystems? I asked Steve about exactly this. Let's take a look at the clip. I mean, if we're going to just think about the fundamentals, right? Um, there's a significant aspect of it that is, you know, taken from traditional fundamental analysis, and that is like, you know, trying to work out a, a revenue generation um, to token holders or to stakers or whatever, maybe reducing whatever cost there may be, and trying to come up with a kind of implied yield or price sales or PE or whatever, right? And then you have the the utility coin valuation, right? Which sort of comes back to our original thought around um, what would the valuation of, of Apple be if people needed to buy iPhones with Apple stock, right? And for that, um, that's incredibly difficult. The only sort of, um, the only kind of rough tool that we've got is the Fisher equation, which is basically <laughs> MV equals PQ, right? So basically um, the, the kind of monetary stock times the velocity of money equals the uh the kind of gdp of the of the of the micro economy right so it's essentially the 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 equation you might use for sort of valuing um for valuing a currency right um that's incredibly rough uh but it's giving you some kind of concept of how how uh, the 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 kind of gdp and the overall economic activity within that kind of little micro economy has an impact on the um, on the valuation of the coin and how it's affected by, you know, staking, which obviously reduces the velocity of money, et cetera, means more locks, more is locked up. So uh, those are the very sort of rough tools that you have to, to analyze it from a fundamental perspective. But then obviously in crypto, you have technical aspects, you have um, narratives, et cetera. And sometimes 
you know, frankly, in the short term, they play out more, far more powerfully than than the, than the fundamentals, right? But I think that if you can take um, if you can take a long term view on this stuff, then there's there's alpha because I think that when you compare it to equities, frankly, there aren't as many people doing kind of deep fundamental analysis as as, as there is for you know your average kind of large cap stock, right? Um, and so, therefore. In some senses, crypto doesn't react. I'm sure you know this as, as as rationally maybe to information as equities might. But on the other hand, um, I think there's more alpha on the table for for those who are kind of willing to put in the fundamental work. A little Irving Fisher with your morning coffee. You don't get that on the other financial networks. Uh, Moritz, Steve is talking about the valuation models of Web3 protocols. These are concepts that are very near and dear to your heart, Moritz. What are your thoughts? Yeah, they're near and dear to my heart, Ash, uh, if and when I can understand them. Some of them I just don't understand. I just find them interesting to follow through. I mean, in our space, in digital asset space, you've probably heard about the stock to flow model of Plan B and you have Metcalfe's law and, you know, the analogy of, you know, network adoption and, you know, comparing that to the Internet adoption or to the, to the speed of the Internet adoption 20, 25 years ago. And all of that kind of like is a nice framework. Whether these frameworks are accurate and good indications of value remains to be seen. I'm not so sure about this. When you ask me whether the price of or the stock of Microsoft or pick any other stock, really any other stock, is fairly valued, I wouldn't know. I absolutely don't know whether any of these valuations are fair. I'm not a fundamental analyst. It's just not what I do. So I'm using you know, as you know, valuation frameworks that I can work with, which are usually quantitative in nature. I mean, I take positions when, you know, the trend is in a certain direction, it's appropriately sized. I have a risk budget and stop loss, these type of things that gets me through the markets. This is my true north and my compass, which I'm using that since many, many, many years. Um, and all the other, you know, valuation frameworks to me are interesting to read about, but uh, I wouldn't trade uh, my money uh, according to these frameworks. Well, you know, and that's why it's so great to have someone on like Steve Goulden who thinks about this all day long and look, has to go out there and commit his firm's capital uh, to some of these ideas. I think it's it's fascinating to see that there are people out there who are doing what Steve is doing, doing what Steve did on this show, uh, which is coming in and hammering it out and giving us a, a preview of what is going to be uh, a model that may be used uh, to value these sort of very abstruse, uh, essentially de facto financial instruments in the future. By the way, another open question on all of this uh, is the question of how uh, how some of the legal, regulatory, and compliance issues uh, are going to shake out. So it's a lot to chew on, but a fantastic conversation. So here's what I think the viewers can take away uh, from my conversation with Steve Goulden. Steve says we're on the cusp of moving real life onto the blockchain. He's highlighting the fact that Web3 done properly would cut out the middleman, thus significantly reducing fees. According to Steve, low margin platforms would find it a lot easier to operate in Web3 than in a Web2 environment, which in turn would allow for more industries to be disrupted. He goes on to provide a few examples of what that could look like while admitting we're only, as we were sort of saying, more it's at the very beginning and just starting to scratch the surface of all of this. As for valuations of tokens, Steve is using a modified quantity theory of money model uh, to do a rough back of the envelope style calculation because of a limited framework for analysis. There's the potential for more alpha on the table for those willing to do this fundamental analysis in Steve's view. 
Moritz, obviously a broad conversation here today. And also, I should say, we've got some comments coming in from our audience. Uh, the first one is from Alan Lung from YouTube. Uh, Moritz doesn't seem convinced with a lot of the potential for Web3 applications. What if the applications paid out in stablecoin instead of proprietary tokens, Moritz? Yeah, again, like I'm convinced about the ones that I can understand. I fail to understand some of the stuff that's thrown out there. And I don't think it's that simple because if really all that were required is like a Web3 type of token and spirit, then companies would do it right now today and they would already have it, but they don't. So it tells me that there's there's more complexities that we all need to understand. Now to the question specifically about the stablecoin, in the example that was used with Uber, I don't think that would really work because the stablecoin would be used on a stablecoin. And if Uber um, would have to pay that stablecoin to the driver, then that's kind of like paying dollar to the driver. So it's a very expensive thing for them to do. They would have to pay the dollar, right? right. Um, raise the cash in order to make the payment as opposed to just airdropping tokens and giving the token away to the driver and the hope of future higher value. So, so the stablecoin thing, I don't see that really changing anything um, compared to what we have today, other than the dollar now being digital. No, that's exactly right. I think that's uh, precisely spot on. Uh, there's really no point to paying out stable coins. And this is this sort of weird idea here, which is you have these kind of equity-like instruments uh, that are utility tokens that they create utility on the network. And, you know, to me at least, another thing that's unclear is where that line between utility on the one hand for use in the network, almost like an arcade token, is divided from an equity uh, type position, which obviously, obviously is going to be regulated by the SEC for US persons at least. So yeah, I don't really see how stablecoins solve the problem. The idea here is it's exactly like paying out US dollars, so there's really no advantage. Uh, so an interesting point and one that we're going to hash through more, I'm sure, precisely those kinds of issues. Here's another question that comes to us from SJ. This is from YouTube. Crypto is definitely a bet on the future, but I wonder how long uh, it can take for these visions to come to fruition. Price will surely follow, but what do you think could be more it's the tipping point? I wish I knew, SJ. I really don't know. I agree with you. It's a long-term bet on the future, and it's going to remain volatile um, for years, really, is what I'd say. You know, I'd be very surprised if we could see uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum realizing, you know, 10 to 15% volatility anytime soon. So it's going to be a volatile asset class with ups and downs, developing fast, um, but developing in the right direction, I think, you know, to, to the top side, which is why we all have, you know, a, a, a big part of our careers now in this space or tied to this space. It's right. super interesting. It's a bet on the future. Don't ask me about the tipping point. I'm the wrong person to ask. Yeah, SJ, it's a great question. I would just say, you know, I think one of the potential tipping points, I don't think there's going to be a single tipping point, but I think one thing that could definitely help this space uh, would be legal regulatory compliance clarity around these issues, precisely like the one we were just talking about more. It's the idea uh, of what is a security, what's not a security, what is, I mean, a utility token is a, is kind of a term of art uh, that's almost been created, structured in contradistinction uh, from securities as a way of saying, hey, no, this isn't a security, uh, but regulators have not yet weighed in on the validity of that proposition. I think it's incredibly exciting. I think it has immense potential, uh, but to go out and build in that space, Boy, you really need to have a, a pretty, uh, a pretty, you know, sort of level of self confidence in terms of uh, your ability to do that when there isn't the regulatory clarity in the space. By the way, one more thing, CJ, that you may find interesting: uh, a takeaway that Dan Moorhead said yesterday in his conversation with Ral that I thought was especially interesting. Uh, he said, you know, most people say 
that the internet is 30 years old. That's not true. The internet is 50 years old. It took us the first 20 years just to get to a browser. Um, so obviously, it's sort of the implication there being just how early it is in this space and how long it can take for some of these paradigms to develop, like the regulatory paradigm, some of the valuation models, all the things, in fact, that Moritz and I have been talking about uh, and that we were discussing with Steve earlier in this show, very much uh, things that can take some time to really firm up. Uh, Moritz, great conversation, as always, when you join us on this show. Thank you for having me on, Ash. Let's do this again. I always enjoy this. And today, this was just, yeah, super interesting. I, I had a great time. Well, let's commit to doing it more often. This was a lot of fun. That's it for today's show. Thank you for watching. As always, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel and smash the like button. Remember, this is your show, guys. We want to hear what you think is working, what you think is not working. So drop us a comment down below and let us know your feedback. What guests do you want to see? What theme should we cover? We appreciate you sharing your time with us today, and we especially appreciate you sharing your suggestions with us in the future. Tomorrow, we'll be just hours away from the merge. We have a very timely conversation with one of the folks who worked in it. That's Tim Bako. See you tomorrow live on the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Thanks for watching, everybody. Oh.